Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest on the show, this time from the States, is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute and he's joining us to look at the first part of Revelation chapter 1. And in this podcast we're looking at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 1. Alistair, hi, welcome from the States. Thank you, it's great to be back with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to, to have you back and you're in New York. I am indeed. Lucky you. Now, obvious questions to start off with, Alistair. What is the book of Revelation? Who wrote it and when? Well, obvious questions, but the answers are much contested. So when we're coming at the book of Revelation, one of the things that we'll find is that there are different approaches to the interpretation of just about every single aspect of the book. And so the fundamental reading of the book, and this in some sense is like the book of Song of Songs, with which it has some commonalities. The fundamental approach of reading can be proposed in many different forms. So there will be historicist approaches, idealist approaches, futurist approaches, contemporary historical approaches to the text, etc. And so when we're coming at the book, um, we need to consider that many of the questions about what the book is about, what the book is for, who is the author of the book, will be influenced by our considerations of these broader questions of interpretation. I believe that the book was written by the same author as the author of John's Gospel, John the Apostle himself, and one of Jesus' three core disciples. And I think it explains many of the common features that we have between these two texts. I'm particularly influenced here by the work of Warren Gage, who has argued that we can map the texts of John's gospel and Revelation onto each other chiastically and also sequentially and see that there are substantial um, correlations which would not arise were they not written by the same hand. And so I think the book was most likely written by John the Apostle, who is the disciple who Jesus loved in the Gospel of John, one of the core three, along with Peter and James. The other thing we can note is for dating, a lot depends upon how we understand the events of the book. Do we believe this to be fulfilled, for instance, in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple? I believe that that is the primary horizon in view. And for that reason, I believe in a pre-70 AD dating and probably a two or three years beforehand. But the majority um, interpretation is that it's um, later on, um, probably in the 90s AD. Mm. Well, come on and talk about uh, the the, uh, the events of Revelation and, and how AD 70 fits into the whole scheme of things a little bit later. But the very first word of Revelation is the word apocalypse. Now, what sort of literature was an apocalypse? Well, we have maybe apocalyptic literature in something like the book of Daniel. You have visions of the heavenly throne. You have um, apocalypses in uh, intertestamental literature as well. E Enoch and other things like that that describe visions of the heavenly realm and visions of eschatological judgment, these sorts of things. When we're dealing with Revelation, I think it's helpful to see it less in terms of just this generic form of literature, and more in terms of of whom it's revealing. It's revealing Jesus Christ. It's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's his unveiling. And so that is, I think, the best angle of approach to the book. Um, Jesus is the one doing the unveiling. 
he is also the one being unveiled. And as we read through the book, it's helpful to read this not so much as a, a text about future events in general on the world stage, as if it were some text similar to Nostradamus or something like that, or the sorts of prophecy that people talk about in terms of the end of the world and certain cataclysms that will occur. It's about a person. It's about the fulfillment of the covenant. It's very much within that framework, not just in terms of political events that will precede the downfall of the creation or the start of some new age. And so it is the person of Jesus Christ that is the key to the book, not so much a genre. And I should mention, we've just been joined by Rido, my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church. Rido, hi. Hi. Yeah, I'll bring you in in a minute. Uh, what's the significance, um, Alistair, of the use of the word sign or signified or symbol there in verse 1? Yes, yeah, so when we're reading through the book of Revelation, we'll see lots of events in history referred to, but they're referred to in a particular way. The revelation is given in symbolic form. And so when we're reading about destructions that will befall cities and empires, we're reading these in terms of, for instance, angels going out like horse, like horsemen, bringing judgment in their wake, or um, great disasters coming down from heaven with the pouring out of bowls or the blowing of trumpets. And so it's given in symbolic form. It's not an account in the sort of concrete description that we're used to. And so as it's symbolized or signified by the angel, I think we need to understand the sort of text that it is. Many people try to see this as a presentation of, I don't know, helicopters or um, other things that we might understand within our contemporary world within an ancient understanding which did not have these technological and military marvels. But I think that's fundamentally to misread the book. The book needs to be understood in terms of its signs. And those signs and symbols are ones that have been developed throughout the whole of the rest of the Bible. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, read it as a book that comes at the end of the canon. If you don't know the rest of the canon very well, you'll struggle to read this book because it's using language that has been accumulated and developed throughout the rest of scripture. And so although we don't have direct allusion, direct citations of the Old Testament for the most part, and other parts of the New Testament within the book of Revelation. It is one of the most dense books of allusion to the rest of the scripture. It's using the language, the symbolism, the mental and imaginary world of the rest of the scripture to convey its message. And so we need to come into the book with an understanding of that sort of language of sign and symbol. We've already started talking about this when you were talking about da uh, dating. But John says that the events of Revelation must take place quickly or in speediness. Now, what does that mean for our interpretation of Revelation? Well, it might be helpful to compare it to statements that we find at the very end of the book of Daniel, where Daniel is told to seal up the vision because the time is not yet. John is given a, a contrasting description. And many of the events of Daniel occurred within a few hundred years after he wrote the book. So it wasn't on the very far distant horizon at all. It was very near at hand in the larger scope of history. But for Daniel's day, it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime or in the lifetime of two generations hence, perhaps. But when we're reading the book of Revelation, 
it contrasts with that. It's referring to something that's happening very near. And for that reason, I think it makes sense to relate the events of the book of Revelation to things that are going to happen within the next decade of its being written. I think um, this fits very well with some of the statements that our Lord made during his earthly ministry. Some of those standing here will not taste death until they see the Lord coming in glory. There's a statement to the high priest that he will see heavens opened and or he will see um he will see the sign of the son of man in heaven we can see the or the son of man coming on glory on the clouds and then we can think about the way that nathaniel is told you'll see heavens opened and angels ascending and descending upon the son of man these eschatological visions this reality of something that marks the end of the age is seen as something that is going to happen fairly soon Jesus talks about this in the Olivet Discourse, for instance. And although we might think because we're working within modern understandings of what these terms mean, that this can't be referring to an event in history. It's referring to a cosmic destruction. That would be to go against the way that this language works in Scripture. So if we go to the book of Isaiah, we have language of heavens being rolled up like a scroll, stars falling from heaven, etc., we have that in the Olivet Discourse, and we have similar sorts of things in the book of Revelation. This does not need to refer to the sorts of cosmic disasters and, I don't know, a, a plummet or something like that. It, it can refer to things that are very clearly operating within the world of symbolism, the destruction of an empire, the downfall of some some covenant order, for instance. Yes, so the sun, moon and stars falling as a reference to the end of the old creation, which happens, uh, I suppose, officially in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, and I think as we go through the book of Revelation, it makes a bit more sense. But it can seem strange to us reading this book and reading this sort of cosmic language to think of it being referring as referring to something like AD 70. Why would AD 70 weigh that much? I mean, if it were not for people arguing that various of the prophecies in the New Testament refer to that event, most of us would never have heard even of this within our formal education. It just does not feature that much within the on the immediate horizontal plane of history compared to other destructions that have occurred. It seems fairly small. And yet, when we understand it in terms of the covenant order, it's God's way of relating to humanity fundamentally changes at this point. There's a revolution in the heavens. The whole order of the heavens has been transformed through what's taking place in the book of Revelation. And so that, although it may not look that great on the earthly stage, represents a revolution in the way that humanity relates to God. We can think about the movement from old covenant to new covenant. This is the final falling away of the old covenant order and leaving the new new covenant in its in its place and yeah, so we, unless we have a sense of the covenant significance of what's taking place i think we'll struggle to understand why this is so weighty and important within the new testament in general and within the book of revelation in particular rito questions for alistair before we carry on i'm trying to think of, <laughs> I'm this i think you're um i just kind of want to reiterate what alistair said in terms of the it's a the revelation because it's so easy to do to move your eyes away from who Jesus is and what he's doing through Revelation and the importance of that and focus on all of the detail and how it might apply kind of, you know, in a future 
kind of sense of what's going on directly around me. But you know, it's the revelation of Jesus. You know, kind of that 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 is just so important, right? That when I've ever taught this, I've always said, look at where everyone's eyes are you know, in a narrative. Yeah, you know, kind of in what's being. It's, and it's always on Jesus. You know, most of the time, you know, our eyes are on Jesus, but not on other things and on His glory. Uh, and it just just it's so important to do that, isn't it? And that is more generally, I think, one of the things that will be a guiding principle throughout our study of the book, that if you keep your eyes on the things that are central, that really matter, don't just focus on this as a blow-by-blow description of disasters that will fall at the end of the age, but think about it very much in terms of what's the through narrative that really gives the book its drive. It's about Christ, it's about his church, it's about the establishment of this new order, and it's about the downfall of the old order. Once you've got that central narrative in place, the details, you can maybe fail to understand certain of the details, but still get the point of the book. And so getting the point of the book is what really we should be about. Yes. Now, why is witness such an important theme in uh, both the Gospel of John and indeed in Revelation? Yes, as you note, it is something that we find throughout the Gospel of John. John is a witness in writing the gospel, John the Baptist is a witness. We have various other witnesses who speak of what Christ has said to them or who speak of him more generally. We can think about the ways that scripture is brought forth as a witness. The father is declared to be a witness. Moses is declared to be a witness. All of this is, I think, part of what John is trying to do as he says at the end, these things are written that you might believe. And so there's a sort of implicit court case being set up with these various witnesses bringing forth their voices and their evidence, as Richard Borkham has argued, the importance of eyewitness within the Gospel of John is considerable. These are, um, This is a book that's formed by people who have seen the risen Christ, who have witnessed him teaching certain things. And John is a witness to all of these events, which will help us to understand what what befalls. He sees, as it were, above the firmament, so that we might understand the meaning of events below the firmament. And that importance of witness, I think, has partly, this is a person who can tell us about something, but witness, I think, has a bit more of a formal force within John theology. It's The witness is um, someone who can act in a particular capacity. They have a certain authority because they bear faithful statements concerning, testimony concerning reality. And so Jesus is the faithful witness. He's one that is the one who bears witness to the truth. You can think about the way that he talks about his ministry as one of bearing witness in um, places like the Upper Room Discourse and John. But also he's one who witnesses before the Father and So in these ways, Christ is going to be acting in a sort of legal capacity as he's the one who has the authority to open the scroll. He's the one who's going to execute this act of justice. And it's all playing out before the divine throne. And there are these acts of justice taking place. And so this legal context, I think, gives a sense of weight to that language of witness that we might initially miss if we're not attentive to that. 
We'd better come on and deal with some of the numbers in the text. Number seven is important right throughout Revelation. Uh, what's the significance of the fact, I wonder, that, Jesus, that John writes to seven churches? We've also got seven spirits. Can we just deal with that? Yes, the seven churches are, as it were, they, they, you begin with the seven churches in, or the seven cities, and then you have one other city that is um, the focus of the rest of the book the city that's going to be destroyed and the other one that's going to be raised up. And these seven churches, I do not believe it's accidental that there are seven of them in numbers. Seven is a number that John plays upon within all of his writing. If you go through the Gospel of John, James B. John has argued that there are seven weeks if you follow the days. Now, of course, there's much more than seven weeks being covered, but there is a sort of symbolic series of seven weeks playing out seven weeks of course leads up to it's seven times seven which is associated with the feast of pentecost but also in the larger scale with jubilee and jubilee themes are really prominent within the book of john 46 years has this temple been been built and you're going to raise it up in three days 46 plus 3 49 which is seven times seven or you are not yet 50 years of age i mean christ is only in his early 30s why would he be described in that way because 50 is associated with jubilee and you have seven signs you have seven at many points as six plus one so there are six water pots in chapter two and then in chapter four you find the seventh water pot it's the sixth hour at the beginning of chapter four and then we're told an hour is coming and at the end of the chapter it was the seventh hour we're told that you've had five husbands the one you are now with is not your husband there's another man who's coming seven men and so christ is the seventh man as it were so as we go through john's gospel seven is very clearly a number that is important for him it represents rest it represents the sabbath it represents the eschaton because the sabbath is a picture of reality filled promise of rest if we go to Hebrews, for instance, we see it being used in that sense, the um, rest of the Sabbath and the way in which Joshua didn't really bring the people into the fullness of rest. There's another rest awaiting. Christ is the one that brings the true rest. Christ is the one who brings the full reality of Sabbath. And so seven being this repeated number, I think, is significant. We'll see it also referring back to sevens within the Old Testament. So there are seven you can think about the lampstands associated with seven stems on the lampstand but there are seven of them and so it's seven times seven 49 associated again with jubilee think about the way that you have seven seven seals seven trumpets seven bowls seven trumpets might make you think back to the story of jericho and walking around the city for seven days on the seventh day, walking around seven times, blowing seven trumpets and the city walls falling down. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. So seven is a very important number. It's a number that alerts us to themes of rest, of Sabbath, of Jubilee, of these stories of the Old Testament. And it's giving us also points of contact with the gospel. How does verse 7, speaking of sevens, how does verse 7 pick up on themes from Daniel and Zechariah? In Daniel chapter 7, we have the great statement that I think is being alluded to here. As you have the 
great beasts that have arisen from the sea in succession, the four beasts being removed and in their place, the son of man arrives on the clouds to the throne of the ancient of days. and He's given all authority and power. And so this is what is in view there. Christ also speaks of this concerning what's going to happen in his trial before the high priest. He says, you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Coming on the clouds of heaven is not necessarily coming down with the clouds of heaven in judgment. It's the sign that the son of man is seated at God's right hand. It's the sign that the events foretold by Daniel chapter seven have occurred. And then you have similar things in um, in Zechariah 12 that I think are being alluded to here. The um, one who was pierced um, is a reference to Zechariah 12, verse 10, I think, as the people of the house of David and Jerusalem mourn as they look on the only child that has been pierced. Why are triads or groups of threes so significant here in Revelation? Yes, uh, we have different sorts of triads. We thought about the, the triad of seven with the, the seals, the trumpets and the bowls. Um, there are other sorts of triads. You can think about the ways that God is spoken of. You can think about the grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the, his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. Now, we've got there a sort of Trinitarian triad, the um, one who was and is and is to come, the seven spirits, and then the faithful witness as Christ. You can think also of the ways that there are sort of the triads within the triads, the titles that are used. So Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. And if we think about the way that these other expressions and titles are used, we'll often see triadic forms. Think about the way the one who is and who was and who is to come is a triadic statement. And so I think we have a number of examples of triads here um, that are developed and um, we'll find them elsewhere in the book too. Yes, I noted uh, in Peter Lightheart's commentary, which is a fabulous commentary, he, he writes of verse 8, there are 21 words, this is in the original Greek, in the whole verse, three times seven, he writes, the number of the triune God multiplied through the seven days of creation. So that's just astonishing, isn't it? This is the sort of detail we're finding in John's text. Yes, it's a very densely composed and literarily brilliant text. As you look more closely, you'll always find new facets within it and things to explore and discover. It's one of the most amazing books for that more generally. There are hidden depths to this book. Last question from me. In what way is God the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last word? Yes, uh, it's certainly a way of drawing upon the language of the revelation of the divine name in Exodus chapter 3. And also, these are statements that we find in the prophets in places like Isaiah chapter 41, the way that the Lord describes himself as the first and with the last. I think you can see other allusions, perhaps, um, to other texts going on here. But I would, I would argue that it's Christ as, we can think of Christ as the first word. He's the one through whom all things were created. He's also the last word. He's the one who judges and and 
the way that we think of God is very much within these terms. The spirit, for instance, holds together. It works throughout history. He brings the deep things from history, but he also brings the future to us. And so we're connected with the deep events of history, but also um, drawn towards the future in the life of the spirit. And so that way in which history itself is bounded, all of language itself is bounded, the first and last, the A to Z of the alphabet, the A to Z of language, the A to Z of existence, all of these things are alluded to or comprehended within those sorts of statements. And I think all of it comes back to a strong revelation of God himself. We need to read these chapters theologically, that God himself is naming himself in these different ways within the opening to this book, much as we find, for instance, at the beginning of the Exodus in the revelation to Moses at the burning bush. This is another burning bush scene, but with the... Um, lampstands as that sort of burning bush yes we're going to come on uh, in the next podcast to talk about the all the temple imagery before we close Rido, final questions thoughts for alistair please why does why did john start his letter in this way because it, you know, kind of the rest of the, the book proceeds quite differently but what why, why does it start as a letter and kind of then change somewhat you know kind of uh, after this yes good question and I think we can maybe see ways in which there are the letters to the seven churches are, as it were, a refraction of what will be wrought together in the letter to the one church, as it were, or the letter to the one city that marks the rest of the book. And so both texts need to be read alongside each other. We can also maybe think of the ways in which there might be themes of earlier books that are being alluded to here christ stood on the banks of the uh, of the sea and called out to seven disciples at the end of the book of john um, is there something about that that is being alluded to here john standing just off on this island and calling as it were across the sea to the seven churches in asia yeah i'm not sure but there's there's something i think of and these chapters that frames the rest of what's going on. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Rido, uh, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. And thanks, as always, to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.